hearts. God be with you. Let us pray. O God, whom saints and angels delight to worship in heaven, be ever present with your servants who seek through art, music, and worship to perfect the praises offered by your people on earth and grant to them even now glimpses of your beauty and make them worthy at length to behold it unveiled forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In case you are a Book of Common Prayer nerd like myself, that's one of the prayers that's in the back. It's the prayer for church musicians and artists. Um, there's a wealth of resources in the 800s of your Book of Common Prayer if you're ever needing a prayer for a particular circumstance. Commend that to you. Today we're going to talk all about liturgy. I know many of you have participated in liturgy here for years. Um, some of you still may feel new to the Episcopal tradition, um, but I want to try and do some demystifying if we can. We will never totally deconstruct the mystery of worship. That's the glory of it. Uh, but there are many things that I hear every once in a while of people saying, well, why do we do that? What's that about? Why do we say those particular words? Um, so I, most of what I want to do today is hear what you are curious about. I'll start us with a, a few words, um, but I'm sure there's things that you have noticed that have grabbed your attention, um, either in a good way or in a challenging way, or things that you've simply wondered about. So we'll have an opportunity to be in conversation. That's most of what I want to do today is be in conversation with one another and hear what you are curious about. The description for this forum included, why do we do what we do, and why do we say what we say? So I'm going to give as brief an answer to that as I can. So first, let's think about the doing of worship. And we can look at the roots of the word worship and of liturgy, and that gives us a bit of an indication of what this is all about. So ship means a state of showing or um, a state of being. So like companionship, um, which is a state of being a companion. W-O-R, were, worthy. So when we worship, we are showing what is worthy. We are giving our glory to God and being reminded within our own selves and um, in this community of what is worthy of praise. And it's God. It's God. It's the body of Christ as we are gathered together here. So that's one lens that we can use. The other is the word liturgy, which is often used somewhat interchangeably with worship, depending on your context. Um, and that comes from the Greek, litos ergos, which is public work. So this is the work that we do all together. It can't be done alone. Um, it's something that requires the full body um, to be active and participating in this together. So this is something that we do together um, as a common body to show that God is worthy of all of our praise. 
that's the, the short version of why do we do what we do. Um, there's lots of little bits along the way that we might unpack as we're here together, uh, but that's the big picture. We'll talk a little bit about worship in general, and then also do some of the specifics of this context. St. Columbus does some particular things in worship that you might not see in another Episcopal church, and that can be said of other Episcopal churches as well. We all have our own little bit of flavor, if you will. I also don't want to assume that all of us come from an Episcopal background. So when I'm saying things, if I use a word that is unfamiliar, raise your hand, let me know. Um, there are a lot of sort of insider terms that we use in the church, in this denomination and in others. Um, so I, I want to give you full permission to interrupt me at any point. If you have a question about a term that I'm using or if something that I say is sparking uh, a curiosity for you, please interrupt me. As I said, I want to be in conversation. Um, so you might lead us down a path that I didn't know we were going on and that's a, a good and holy thing. Um, there are lots of spiritual transplants, um, as I sometimes call them, in the Episcopal Church. Folks who have come from more fundamentalist traditions, um, folks who have come from the Catholic Church and love the liturgy of the Catholic Church, but are seeking a slightly different uh, theology. Um, and for many people, that includes ordaining women, um, marrying and ordaining queer people. Um, so we have people coming from lots of different traditions and finding themselves here in the Episcopal Church. So I welcome you to share of your own context that formed you, too. Um, that's, that's important. The big picture of liturgy and worship, we can look at the scope of the full church year, and we follow a liturgical calendar. So that starts in Advent. The first Sunday of Advent is the first day of the new year. So there'll also be a forum all about the new year um, when we get to that point. But we go through Advent, Christmas, uh, Epiphany, and the season after Epiphany, Lent, and then Easter, a reminder that Easter is a season, not just a day. We get 50 days to rejoice, uh, which is more than Lent. So a reminder that we are um, to rejoice um, even more um, than, than anything else. Um, we go through Easter, Pentecost, and the season after Pentecost, and then we're back to Advent. So right now we're in that season after Pentecost. And here at St. Columbus, this is one of the particular things that we do. Um, we split that up into a few semi-seasons. So right now we're in a, se a semi-season that we are building on the theme of living God's love, just to get us back into the church year, um, to welcome folks who have been away for the summer, and to recenter ourselves. So many churches, because the season after Pentecost is so long, will switch up their prayers during that time. But the thing that is particular here is that uh, we have a particular theme that we are shaping our liturgy around. Uh, so right now we are doing Live God's Love, um, which you'll 
know is from our mission statement. Um, and then soon we'll be switching to the season of creation, where of course we'll focus on care of creation. We'll have some prayers that center us around that theme. Um, so that's something that adds some interest to what we do here. Um, that informs the choices that we make for the opening that we use in worship, for our prayers of the people. It informs how we decide what Eucharistic prayer to use, um, things like that. So if you're noticing changes through the course of the year, um, those are choices that the, the worship team makes together to help, uh, help us to see those themes in worship um, and awaken something within us through worship. We are one of many denominations that uses the revised common lectionary. So if you ever wonder, why are we reading this today? It's because of the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a three-year cycle that goes through Scripture. Um, and each of those has um, more or less a focus on one of the Gospels um, and moves through the Old Testament as well. We move through the Psalms on that rotation. Um, so that helps us to get an exposure to a lot of different scripture over the course of a few years. It doesn't include everything. So you still ought to read your Bible at home um, and pick up on those things you've missed out on. Sometimes a practice that I like to do is to see what the lectionary offers us and then read a couple chapters on either side to see if there's something that gets left out. Sometimes the lectionary moves continuously through a passage or a few chapters um, of a book, and sometimes it jumps around and skips a bit, um, or it goes forward and then comes back, um, because the lectionary is also trying to do some thematic work for us. Um, so I encourage you to, to take note of what you're hearing, the themes that you're noticing between the pieces of scripture, um, and also to take note of what you're not hearing. Um, that's an opportunity we also have when we use uh, Year W, the womanist lectionary. We'll use that in the season after Epiphany. Um, and Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney highlights some pieces of scripture that are not included in the Revised Common Lectionary. So that invites us to hear some things that we might not otherwise hear. Um, liturgy is composed of two big parts. We have the, the liturgy of the word, the service of the word, and the liturgy or service of the table. So as that sounds, that's the, our, the first half is our reading from scripture, it's the sermon, um, our prayers, all of those things that we do that center around what we are saying and hearing together. And then we shift into a time that is centered around the table and what we do at the table. Um, we gather with Jesus and with his disciples, uh, present among us and present throughout history uh, to share a meal at the table. So I'll offer you a word that you can remember and keep in your pocket or forget immediately, um, and that is anamnesis which is a sort of remembering that we do when we um, celebrate the Eucharist. And it's the kind of remembering that our relationship to time gets a bit fuzzy. So we are right here, right now, but we are also back at the table with Jesus at the Last Supper and just about everything in between. So anamnesis is a particular kind of remembering and stepping into a memory um, 
that we get to take part in here at the table. So an example that I sometimes use when I'm trying to explain the word anamnesis um, is about my grandfather who uh, one of his friends was telling a really long-winded story uh, that involved a journey to go and get oysters. I don't know that the person telling the story ever got there, so my grandfather father said, so where did you find them oysters? So now anytime someone in my family says, where did you find them oysters? We're all taken back to that moment um, of silliness in our family, of my grandfather calling someone out for a really long story that probably didn't need to be that way. So I'm sure you have those things in your family, a sort of inside joke or a memory that is just so strong for you that when you hear a spark of it, you're immediately transported back to it. So that's what we're talking about when we think about anamnesis. Um, so think about those moments in your life that are your, where did you find them oysters kind of um, tags for you. In the Episcopal and Anglican tradition, we talk a lot about how praying shapes believing. So we deeply affirm that what we do here together, the prayers that we say, the ways that we move our body in this space, shape the way that we believe. They shape the things that we understand about God, and they shape us to live our lives. So church is not just about Sunday morning. You all know this. I'm not telling you anything new, but sometimes we all need that reminder um, that it's not about the hour that we spend here together. It's part of what we do, um, but we're also formed through the time that we have together to go out into the world, um, to live God's love. As we often say, um, what we do here invites a particular posture and way of being as we venture out into the world beyond, and we carry this place and these people and our experiences here into all that we do. Fellowship is also uh, deeply formative. There are lots of things that we do together that form us, um, not just worship. The Book of Common Prayer, um, which is a source of a lot of curiosity for Episcopalians, especially new Episcopalians, uh, was first written in 1549 uh, by Thomas Cranmer. And the goal with the Book of Common Prayer was exactly what the name indicates, is to give a common source for the worship that we do. So the church uh, exists throughout the world and throughout time, and the Book of Common Prayer was intended to give a sort of rooting point for the local iterations of the church. There's a priest in my life that likes to call these outposts of the kingdom. Um, so those, all those outposts needed a way to share words um, and to know that they were doing something in common. And that helps uh, local churches to know that they are tied to something bigger. This is also worship that's written in our vernacular. It's written in the language that we speak. Um, and prior to this, much of uh, the church's history the Mass was offered in a language that people may or may not have understood. Uh, and it's really hard to go somewhere and sit and listen and think, hmm, I have no idea what that priest is saying. And that was a lot of church for um, a lot of history. So the Book of Common Prayer invites us into something that is more participatory and responsive um, that we can understand in our own words. 
Um, and because it is important to understand in our own words, the Book of Common Prayer has also changed over time. Um, it's a, the words we use are important, they matter, they tell us a lot about how um, we think about God and think about one another. So it's important that the words that we share in common are also true to um, the heart of the people and the way that we speak. So that's been um, a change that's occurred over time and will likely continue to change in some way. Um, we'll see what that looks like exactly. Um, that also has been important for um, authorized resources and supplements to the Book of Common Prayer, that sometimes there's something that's offered as a trial. Um, here's, here's something the church is thinking about uh, that we want to give a go and, and see if these words help us in a different way, open something up in a different way. Um, so there may be some of those you're familiar with. Enriching our worship is one that comes up um, relatively frequently, um, things like that. A brief uh, personal story about common prayer. Um, when I went on a pilgrimage with my youth group, uh, it was between the, my ninth grade and 10th grade years of high school. We went to Canterbury and London, and I was in the Canterbury Cathedral um, with all of my peers. And the celebrant, I think it was um, a daily office, um, evening prayer, I believe, uh, the celebrant asked everyone who was present to say the Lord's Prayer in their own language. And that was a moment for me that clicked. Oh, we're all doing this all over the world in our particular culture, in our language, uh, in the communities where we reside. We're all doing this in our own way, and it's shared, and there's a commonality among us. So that was a moment for me where it really clicked why it matters that we share these words together. Of course, plenty of other denominations use the Lord's Prayer as well. That's not unique to a prayer book tradition. But that was a moment for me that it really clicked um, and it helps me to see uh, how meaningful it can be to know that when we go about the world, we can experience something that mirrors what we know. Um, and that, I think, helps us build connection to something that is larger than this community. And we're reminded that we are part of a network of churches all over the world. There are many outposts of the kingdom. I've said a couple of things already about uh, the way that we switch things up here at St. Columba's um, throughout the seasons of the church year. Uh, we also have the benefit here of really beautiful music. Um, it is a real privilege to have the music program that we do, to have our choirs, to have musicians who come in, an orchestra on occasion. Uh, those are things that really add some life and depth to our worship and are also things that change throughout the year. So we use lots of different songs. Our anthems are, are different each week, you'll notice, before communion. Um, and those help us to lift up different themes as well. So things to just pay attention to as we worship um, is what songs are new to you? Where are they coming from? What words in a song uh, spark something different for you? I think those are important things to pay attention to. 
I want to acknowledge that when we do that changing of language, it can be tricky for all of us. Um, things like using either the traditional Lord's Prayer or the contemporary Lord's Prayer can be hard, depending on what version you came to know. I'm going to call out Angela, my wife, who's in the back. This is a point of contention for us in our ecumenical marriage. Angela's Presbyterian um, and uses debtors in the Lord's Prayer. I have never said debtors in the Lord's Prayer. I have, um, th that's just never been my tradition. So anytime we're next to each other in church, which doesn't happen a whole lot, um, there's almost a moment of competition between the two of us of whose words will win. Um, no one's words are winning, um, we know that. But I say that to point out that the words that we know for a prayer that we say all the time are deeply held. Um, and they, they make a difference in the way that we experience worship. So when we use different Eucharistic prayers, when we alternate between the traditional Lord's Prayer and the contemporary Lord's Prayer, um, when we at times use a different version of the Nicene Creed, we know that that affects you. Um, and sometimes it may make you grumpy, and that's okay. Um, sometimes there's changes that we use that I even stump me. I love it. And I trip over the words and um, can tell that they feel really different. And it's good at times to be uncomfortable. It's good to have words that help us feel grounded and comfortable and at ease that we don't have to think about at all. And sometimes it's good to have words that stretch us because they help us to understand a different facet of our faith and of God. So we do that really intentionally, um, but do know that sometimes it's hard. Um, we hold our words really tightly um, and with good reason. Um, I also want to name again that liturgy is something that is deeply participatory. It is the work that we do together. It's a public work, a shared work. Um, and St. Columbus does a really beautiful job of including a lot of different people in worship. Um, and we would love to include even more. Um, so you, you'll notice when you walk in on a Sunday morning, you're greeted by ushers um, who have your bulletin ready for you. We have vergers and acolytes who help us um, make the service happen. Uh, we have Eucharistic ministers who come and partake in sharing of the bread and wine uh, that we bless at the table. We have choristers, we have the folks who do our flowers um, and keep our altar um, and sacristy in working order. There's so many different ways that people participate in liturgy here, um, and it really does take all of us. Um, so there's, there's such a deep benefit in participating in worship in a new way. Um, coming and reading from the lectern, you might hear words in an entirely different way than when you were sitting in the pew. You notice things differently when you participate. So when we say that praying shapes believing, I think our participation also shapes our believing. And our faith is deepened, our connections to this community are deepened when we participate in worship. Um, so I encourage you to think about if God might be calling you to one of those ministries. Um, it's a wonderful way to participate. That's how I am where I am today, um, is because of ministries like that. Because someone said to me, hey, would you like to be an acolyte? And I said, 
I guess so. I don't know what that means, but sign me up. Um, and same thing, becoming a Eucharistic minister. I came back from that pilgrimage I mentioned, and the sort of um, rhythm for folks was that they would go on their youth pilgrimage and come back, and the next invitation was to become a Eucharistic minister. And I said yes, and then I became a verger. And it, you know, it developed from there, and I, I felt a deep connection to people who shared those ministries with me, and my experience of church really shifted. Um, so think about that. Think if, there, if there's something that you're not yet doing that, has, um, that you're curious about, um, something that you want to dig into, a way that you've noticed uh, someone that you care about participating in the service and said, hmm, I think I could do that. Do it. We want you to be a part of what we do here in liturgy. Um, so take part. And if you're curious about any of those and want to learn more, um, my email is always open to you for those sorts of things. I would love to talk about uh, ways that you can dig into ministry here. Towards the end of our service here at St. Columba's, um, we use those words um, that as we are gathered, fed, and sent. Um, and I, I just want to use that as sort of a, a closing to my remarks and then hear what you're wondering about. But when we worship, the primary thing that we are doing is that we are gathered here together, all of us. We are formed together. We are brought together into one body. We are educated and reminded through reading of scripture, through hearing the word proclaimed in a sermon. We commune together. Uh, we share a meal at Christ's table. Um, we are bound together through that shared meal. And then we're commissioned. We're sent out by God to take everything that we have experienced here in this place and to use it for the good of the whole world and to bring God's kingdom closer uh, to earth. So we are gathered, fed, and sent. Um, and that, that feels like a good three-word summary for what it is that we do here. So with that, we have a microphone here in the middle. What are the things that, I've, as you have been in worship, you've wondered, why do we do that? Um, what's that about? Things that, you, that have striked you as odd, maybe, or new, depending on where you have gone to church before coming here to St. Columbus. Um, what surprises you? Maybe something that you really love that is unique about this place? What are you curious about? Can I bring you the microphone? It helps folks online, too. Thank you. Um, I'm a lifelong Episcopalian, so I'm mm -hmm. coming from a different tradition. Um, a comment and a question. Um, I think uh, changing up the words in things that we know by heart, that we can kind of just routinely spit out, um, forces you to think about them. And it, it has offered me a new perspective on what what the message is with that. So I really appreciate that, although it is disc discombobulating sometimes. Um, my, this is a long time question. I, I don't know if, if it's not appropriate, but um, in the Nicene Creed, it ends with, it ends with, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Can you comment on the resurrection of the dead? Exactly. What what is it I'm yeah. looking forward to? Well, <laughs> let's answer age-old theological questions in 
a minute. In three words. Or no, it's <laughs> in three words. <laughs> um, that's a great question. There is a lot baked into the Nicene Creed. We could, uh, maybe it would be fun to do a forum that just goes line by line through the Nicene Creed. I'm seeing lots of heads nodding, so maybe that's on the horizon. There's a lot in there, and there are a lot of people who argued for a long time to get it baked down to what it is. Um, there are other affirmations of faith that are much, much, much longer, and you don't want to be here long enough to read the Athanasian Creed. Um, so there's a lot packed in there, but specifically about the resurrection of the dead, um, I think that's one of one of those that any theologian, many theologians might tell you a slightly different um, understanding of that. But when I think about the resurrection of the dead, as it's named there, I think about um, the coming of God's kingdom um, in fullness. So we are doing our part to bring our world closer to the kingdom each day. Um, and I pray that in time, um, Jesus returns to us and our world is completely transformed into the fullness of that kingdom. And all of us, um, past, present, and future, are gathered at that heavenly banquet with God. That doesn't make it any easier to understand. I'm not sure that I said anything that was much more uh, concrete. Um, but that's what I think about when I say those words, is that that gathering of the the eternal body of Christ. The, the question is whether I'm implying something literal about resurrection. I don't know. The short answer is that I, I don't know. I don't know what that's going to look like, and that's, that's part of the beauty and mystery of it, um, is that our bodies might look like this, or they might not. Um, we'll see. We'll find each other at that great banquet and compare notes. Question. In the Eucharist, why is water combined with the wine? Great question. Um, and again, there, this is one where there are a few different logics that are applied to that. Um, one of them is that when Jesus was pierced in his side, uh, both wine and water, I mean, both blood and water came out of his side. So that's one. Um, some people will say that the water is like a way of combining Christ's divinity and humanity. That gets theologically tricky for me. Um, so there's a couple of different reasons that um, have been applied to that, um, but it's a great question. Um, the one that I think has most resonance for me is thinking about the crucifixion and Jesus pierced in his side. I love these little like phrases that have stood out to you. That's great. Um, so. I know you don't know me, but my name is George, and I just want to recommend an Episcopal priest friend of mine gave me a book a few years ago by N.T. Wright, famous New Testament scholar, called Surprised by Hope, that just digs into those parts of the creed. That's a really good read, and just thinking about heaven as more than kind of everybody around playing harps and stuff, so if it's of interest to you, Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright, yeah, really good. Yeah, great. Um, Grew up in a devout Catholic household, so judgment and guilt, you know, I bring that everywhere. And I have a question. In the, in the uh, worship aid, you are invited to stand or kneel at the confession. 
Mm -hmm. And I kneel because just personally, there's a lot there for me that's very meaningful about that gesture at some point in liturgy. Um, but maybe oversensitive to the time in which we live, I certainly don't want to be inadvertently communicating something about politics or church politics or something. Mm. So I just kind of wonder within the, I mean, I, I kind of feel like that wouldn't be in there unless it was okay to kneel if you want to kneel. But I also just wanted to, I don't know, ask like, is it really okay to kneel yes. when you feel like you're trying to worship together, but then at that moment, there's like some different postures. Yeah. Yeah. It's not one that's a forced choice where there's actually a right answer. Um, but thank you for asking that because I, I know you're not alone. Sometimes when options are given to us, it feels like there's actually, there's only one thing that's correct. Um, yeah. Sometimes there's a number of places in the Book of Common Prayer that you'll see options for your posture. Um, and I often think about the first of those being the one that is preferred, but that's not great language for it. Um, either is entirely valid, um, and it is the choice is given because our personal polity or piety different differs. The way that we understand God and relate to God differs from person to person. And the way that we position our bodies helps us to connect to that in a different way. Worship is embodied. It's not a mental exercise that we come to do um, each week. It, as the pandemic really communicated to us, being in the same space together matters. Moving our bodies in the context of this space matters. Standing or kneeling or sitting um, encourages us to connect in a different way. So the, the simple answer to your question is, please do what feels right to you, to your body, um, to your piety, your relationship with God. Um, I'll emphasize the do what feels right to your body because worship shouldn't be painful. Um, and our, all of us have different physical abilities. So I, I want to name that, that um, in that particular situation, it says stand or kneel. For some folks, sitting is their option. Um, so I, I want to name that, like, the, what our bodies um, are, are capable of and what feels comfortable to our bodies is also an important consideration. Um, yeah, I grew up kneeling at the confession, um, and in many ways that feels right to me. Also, different iterations of the prayer book have offered different um, sort of preferences for that posture. Um, I don't think one is right or wrong. Um, kneeling to me, it, it both feels more penitent, but there's something about that posture that feels really private as well. Um, so for me, when I'm kneeling and confessing, it feels almost like I'm, like I'm in my own space of talking with God. All of us are saying this together, and all of us receive the absolution together. Um, but something about the posture of kneeling, I'm not thinking about what, what the person next to me might be considering. Um, I'm not really thinking about much else than like right in my little bubble. So sometimes it helps to have a posture that helps us to stay in our own space. And sometimes it helps to have a posture that really opens us up to everybody around us. 
I thought George's question was my only posture question, but um, <laughs> I, and I think this is still, you know, like what feels right to you, but I have not been through any of the adult classes for Episcopals. Um, I was kind of Catholic when I was younger, like we were, mm -hmm. and then non-denominational, and then when we started dating, we started attending Episcopal Church together. This is, I don't know, back in what, 2009, 2010. So um, after communion, I know, like historically, that would be a time to come back, to kneel, pray, like really quiet, or I know that it's, I think it's perfectly fine for some folks, they sit, that's just yeah. more comfortable. Does the Episcopal Church tend to teach one thing, suggest something? What's kind of the, the direction upon coming back to your yeah. pew after receiving communion? That's a really good question. I'm not sure that I've ever heard a clear direction on that. The people who taught me that stuff are like the church ladies that that raised me on how you act right in, in church. Um, so I think about some of the like matriarchs of my church community growing up who were the ones that, um, it wasn't any formal introduction or instruction, but there was a way to do it, right? Um, yeah, what feels right to you, what I find it helpful to stay in that prayerful moment. We've just come and shared a meal together. Um, so, I guess what I would say is it's not the time to go back to your pew and start talking about what's for lunch. Um, but that's maybe the, the only thing that I would say it's not for. Um, it's like, okay, what's next? We're almost done. Um, when's the game come on? Where, where are we going for lunch? That kind of stuff. Um, we're still in a prayerful moment. We're still in worship together. Um, yeah, so I, I think for some folks that is, a, is kneeling in a posture of prayer in that way. Um, sometimes it's sitting and just continuing to bask in, in the mystery of the meal that we share together. Um, I don't think there's a, a right answer, and I haven't heard an official teaching um, from the Episcopal Church on it. Maybe others have. I uh, also grew up Catholic, as did a lot of people, and, and uh, grew up at, at you received communion. About half the church would just keep walking mm. at the parking mm -hmm. lot. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just lo a local culture thing. But I, I will say that it, you know, the, the idea of liturgy is something that I, I came to understand as I got older, because I had my little world I grew up in, and when I was a young adult, started to attend some non-liturgical churches. Mm -hmm. And I was lost, because it's like you come in and you don't, you don't know what's going on there. Like, you know, what's the process? Are we, you know, who's doing what, what are, you know, that they're, uh, and, and, you know, it was just a different uh, faith tradition that I was not familiar with. Uh, and, uh, you know, 20 years ago, uh, my wife Katie and I went to Southern Africa, sent by St. Columbus, and I met Natalie, who's here, uh, who's visiting uh, for a few weeks here in the United States. Um, and it was just stunning to go to this small stone church in Luzikisiki out in the Eastern Cape, which is mm -hmm. you know, like Barber County, West Virginia, South Africa. And it's the same. It was the same. It's like, I know, I know exactly, I don't even know this language, but I know exactly what is going on, and that just, 
uh, meant so much to me mm -hmm. uh, to have that connection and that I uh, feel like the difference for me is from uh, being Catholic where I felt like that, that catechism was like that and that's what bonds us. We all believe this and I feel like in the uh, Episcopal Anglican Church, I think, there's much more this book of common prayer of how we pray together, not that you are tied to the Nicene Creed, um, which I, I know people do sort of edit that as they say it in church, and I, I'm kind of okay with that. Um, but that, the liturgy, I think, does mean a lot to me. Yeah, I agree. I, there's something, I sometimes refer to liturgy as the container for what we do. Um, having guardrails of sorts on what we do when we come together is deeply comforting in the same way that um, parents will talk about how your kid needs rules, because if there's not rules, the whole world is available to them and it's overwhelming. I think that's true when we walk into this space as well, that if we have no idea what to expect when we walk into church, it's overwhelming um, and can put us on guard in a way that prevents us from connecting and worshiping. Um, I don't know that that's true for all people who go into a non-liturgical tradition, but sometimes I feel that way when I, I walk into a service and I'm like, I don't know what we're doing here. I don't, I don't know where we're headed. I don't know what the components are going to be. Um, so I think it helps for us to have something that is shared um, and something that gives us a container and a kind of roadmap of here's what we're, we do together. Um, there's a pattern of it that sinks into our bones. So I, I agree, liturgy is, it's great. I'm, you know, biased, but. Quick, um, yeah. a comment and a question. Uh -huh. um, I think it's wonderful that here at St. Columbus, we have choices. We don't have to kneel, we don't have to do this. I just, I came from a more traditional 1950s high, higher Episcopal church, mm -hmm. and I really appreciate the flexibility that we have both in our thinking and in our behavior. Um, so I really like that. Um, question, I noticed today compared to five or ten years ago, the pe people are crossing themselves. Um, what is, particularly, what, why is that? Because to me that's so Roman, mm. that kind of bristle. Yeah. Um, and also genuflecting. Um, it, can you just comment on that? Yeah, uh, again, uh, something of personal piety um, and the way that we move our bodies to connect with what we're doing. Um, I have not always crossed myself. I don't know where I picked that up. Um, I think in part from seminary, but it's something that helps to ground me in what we're doing. So particularly in the Eucharistic prayer, um, when we bless the bread and wine, and then there's a blessing over ourselves, um, that's a way that I feel that, using my body, using my senses and the way that I'm moving through space helps me to feel that. I know that God has blessed each and every one of us already, and sometimes moving on our bodies in a way that, that mirrors that allows us to feel it differently. Um, so that, that's part of what I'm doing. There are a lot of other times that people will cross themselves. Um, some of that, I think, has to do with our community of origin and the, the sort of practices that we pick up um, along the way. I don't know that that really answers your question other than to say, like, yeah, I, I, I hear you. That's, 
it, it's something that differs from person to person. Um, for, for some folks, it does feel kind of Roman Catholic. Um, yeah, it, it, it's important that we all have the, our ability to, particularly in the ways we move our bodies, um, worship in the way that feels right to us. And if there's something that you do or don't do because it feels strange to do the other thing, I encourage you every once in a while to try it. Um, you might find something um, unexpected. So if you don't cross yourself, I wonder if you might try it out and, and see how it feels um, and see if that impacts you. Um, if you are someone who normally kneels for the confession, maybe stand once and vice versa. Um, if you're standing, maybe try kneeling. Uh, things like that might, you might find a practice you didn't know you needed. Um, that's how I felt when I started crossing myself, um, was, oh, I, I didn't know that I needed to do that, but actually that feels really good in my body. Um, so try it out, try, try things in liturgy. This is a, a place, again, where we have that container, those guardrails around us that make it safe to fully immerse yourself um, and see where the Spirit guides you. Um, we're at time, so thank you all. Thank you for, oh, you, do you have a question? Yeah, can you show me how to properly cross yourself? I don't come from a tradition that crosses themselves and I don't know how to do it. I, I cross myself forehead, like sternum, side, side, middle. That's what I do. Is that, you, you asked and then you walked away. This is my wife so I can pick on her. <laughs> yeah, thank y'all.